You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David and team, both the team that was in front of us, the team that is behind you, uh, who make Sunday mornings in the ways that we present them possible. Thank you for being here, those of you who are in person, those of you who are online. Whenever we have a service here, when we hold a service, you're welcome to come. We recommend um, online from time to time just because we don't know what all the back roads are like. The the main roads are are open. But you're always welcome to attend. One uh, weather-related announcement uh, in the communication back and forth, trying to see what we were going to get, not get. Uh, one communi- one piece of communication didn't get to Jeff. That is my fault entirely. We will not be holding Grace Matters next week. A lot of the home groups because of Omicron early in the uh, year and then the weather the last two weeks have not been able to meet. So we're just going to keep that open. We will revisit that topic of spiritual growth, which is, Jeff is right. It's great for the first of the year, but it's great for any time of the year. So again, that's all me, not uh, on Jeff. Um, next Sunday, we will not be having <clears throat> Grace Matters on Sunday night. Well, two weeks ago, we began a series on missions in Matthew sixteen thirty to 20, in which Peter confessed Jesus Christ, the Son, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this was the first time anyone had gotten it. People had, had assigned divine terms of some sort to Jesus, but this was the first time that someone got it, and, and Jesus said to Peter, yes, Peter, you're right, and human flesh, human nature, you didn't get this from your own thinking, your own reasoning, anyone else. My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You are blessed thereby and i will call you the rock and i when when i build my church you will have a key role in the building of the church though the demons of hell fly out to oppose the church my church will stand now this was all very carefully explained in the sermon a couple of weeks ago and many of you said yes i get that no no i don't get that That's okay. That's okay. I love history, and I have to tell you that many of the history books that I read can be rather tedious, laborious at the first of the book. Furthermore, there's information in these books that I will never comprehend nor retain, but the information that is given at the first is nonetheless foundational, and the exciting portions of the historical accounts would not be nearly so meaningful without the foundation having been laid. My point is don't be discouraged if you didn't fully understand the message from Matthew 16, 13 to 20. I read a quote a couple of weeks ago by theologian John Webster that will hopefully encourage all of us. Webster said, quote, Theological work, including theological interpretation, 
requires the exercise of patience. Patience, a virtue with which most Americans are blessed, would you not say? Uh, It requires the exercise of patience. This is because in theology, things go slowly. It's difficult. We are temporal creatures. We do not receive an understanding of God's revelation. Those, that in quotation marks is mine to, to help understand what he was saying. We do not receive an understanding of God's revelation in a single moment. And we are sinful creatures whose idolatry and inattention are only gradually overcome. It would be a poor conception of theological interpretation which presumed to have acquired Scripture's meaning in a final way which cut out the need for ever-renewed listening and learning. Do you think theologians have come to the final conclusions about about most doctrines? We've got a lot of the, the major stuff in place, but every generation has to understand and articulate these doctrines anew. Not differently necessarily, but often there are shades of meaning. God is constantly revealing to the different generations as we go. So in other words, we do not learn everything overnight. Thus, I often say a couple of things. One is... Um, if you come to grace and, and, and you hear something the first time and you're like, well, I don't think I've ever heard that before. If you hang around for a while, it's not that you'll agree with it necessarily, but I'm not trying to present everything we believe and know in one Sunday morning. It is a process and all of the people who preach here are part of that process of laying out the truth of Scripture over time. So if you don't get it in one go, hang on. And you again, you might not agree with it, but you'll at least, okay, I get that now. I understand where he's coming from. I still disagree with it, but I, at least I understand. The other uh, thing that I will sometimes say has left me. I didn't write it down. That was the only one I had written down, so I should have said the other one first, right? It'll come back, though. You, you might think that theology is the work of, of the pastors, the staff, the pastoral staff, and the elders. But theology, anytime you make a statement about God, you're a theologian. Even if I don't believe God exists, you're a theologian at some level. Theology, interpretation and teaching of theology, or the propagation of theology, is the work of all of us. We are all called to share what we know about God. We don't gain an understanding overnight. So rather than being discouraged and thinking, I just don't get that, why not instead think, this is awesome. I will always be learning about the Lord. I'll never learn everything there is to know. That's the other thing. If you have not in the last 10 years, grown significantly in your understanding about a specific doctrine of Scripture and maybe even changed your mind, not on the major stuff, 
But if you haven't changed your mind about anything in Scripture in the last 10 years, are you really growing? Is God really bringing you along or are you stuck in a certain place? So we're always learning about Scripture. The Apostle Peter is certainly going to approve this in today's text. The focus of Matthew 16, 21 to 28, is the centrality of the cross, both in Jesus' work on earth to redeem his people and in the lives of his followers. What does this have to do with missions, which is the focus of this one to two to four month series? <laughs> Not sure how long we're going to go. Before I answer that question, it's good to remember. Theology does not happen according to schedule. It happens as God wills. So to answer the question about missions, though, from our text two weeks ago, we learned that if we don't have the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Then there's no real missionary work, not the kind that the Lord is blessing. If we don't know who Jesus is, but furthermore, the message of Jesus has to be right. It's one of the reasons I'm concerned about people that say, I'm a red letter Christian. In other words, the words of Jesus are the only words that really matter to me. The problem with that is that the words of Jesus are difficult to understand. And we need the epistles to help us make sense of what Jesus said. Now, I'm going to tell you in a couple of weeks how much time I'm spending in the Gospels. So I'm not saying that the words of Jesus are no big deal. They're, they're a huge deal. But to understand the words of Jesus, if you only read the words of Jesus, you can make him nothing more than a social do-gooder, or you can make him almost a monster if you want to. Whatever, whatever portions of his teaching you take and emphasize. So... All Scripture is leading us to understand the whole. And, and what the whole of Scripture teaches us is that the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, is central to what we proclaim to the world. And if it's not, we're doing the wrong thing. So today's text, which continues to build a foundation for this series, will lead us to conclude if we don't get the gospel message right, then our efforts are wasted still. And in fact, Jesus has very strong words. When we misapply, misquote his teaching about the gospel. So we know it's about Jesus but what is it about him? Our text is Matthew 16, 21 to 28. But I'm going to also go back and read verses 13 to 20. Our text from a few weeks ago. And this will provide context without breaking up the flow of the truth of the passage. So would you please stand as the scripture is being read. Matthew chapter 16 beginning with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say 
John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you? You, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter or Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound or shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. This section of the Gospels told in Mark and Luke as well as Matthew is a fascinating account Of the ups and downs in Peter's thinking. Peter represented all of the disciples who were kind of this way and that. Peter represents all of us. After Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus began telling his disciples and he kept on telling them that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem where the religious leaders in in the city would abuse him so badly that they would kill him, but he would rise from the dead three days later. Once again, Jesus had alluded to his death, but here he tells them directly, I must go to Jerusalem and this must must happen. This was the Father's will and it had to be obeyed. Now, Peter, who had just professed that Jesus was the Messiah, now said, no, the Messiah would never act that way. You can't do that. 
So Jesus, Peter, professing Jesus to be the Messiah, said, you need a little bit of tutoring on what it means to be a Messiah. Let me tell you if you don't mind. That was what Peter said. And you know, that's kind of us too, isn't it? Over and over I find myself identifying with Peter. In Acts 10, when the Lord gave Peter a command, he said, No, Lord. Peter said, No, Lord. I could never do that. It's just a little problem. The words no and Lord don't go together. The literal translation of what Peter meant was, May God be merciful to you, Lord. This surely shall not be for you. The disciples considered, considered such an end to be far beneath the Messiah. But God's very plan for mercy necessitated the cross. Peter did not understand at this point, nor would we have understood had we been in Peter's place. We could, in fact, go so far as to say that with all the advantages that we have over Peter, we're on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are on this side of the cross. We're on this side of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came to permanently indwell believers and help us understand the Word. In spite of all of that, we have difficulty understanding how God works in the world. It is unnatural to think that the way of God's blessings lies through suffering and death. Peter anticipated the great works of God to be on brilliant display in Jerusalem when Jesus would assume the throne and fully come into his kingdom. No more of this defeatist talk, Jesus, please. So when Peter made his remark, Jesus chuckled and said, Peter, Peter, you don't understand, but you, you'll get it someday. No. He said just, with just as much passion and emotion, away behind me, Satan. When you think about it, Peter was proposing the same thing that Satan had proposed to Jesus. A kingdom without suffering. Satan said, all you have to do is worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth and Peter was like, Lord, you don't have to go through that. You're the Messiah. You can just take up rule, right? Jesus looked at him. Leave Satan. Get behind me and do not distract me from doing God's will. You're seeking the way of humans, not God's way. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? This is the most Crucial question, isn't it? If we come to church and we don't know what it means to be a Christian, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? The disciples' idea of salvation was the same as most people's. I must become a better person and live in the way that is good for me and good for others. The disciples had left families and businesses behind to follow the most famous rabbi in the land. Jesus was performing good works, doing good everywhere he went. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick, the lame, and the blind. He spoke words of encouragement and comfort to the poor. The gospel was preached. 
the good news was preached to the poor. The disciples worked hard. They, they, they kept the crowds under control. They ran errands and they gathered firewood. They traveled far from home and they often slept under the stars. But though they lived such sacrificial lives, they were confident that the payoff would come when Jesus was crowned king. And Jesus would become the ruler over all the world. And nobody would question him like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes question him now. And so you know what the disciples thought, don't you? You know what? When Jesus comes into the kingdom, we are his chosen ones. We're going to be leaders. And there were often disputes about who would hold what position in the new government. Even after Jesus established the Lord's Supper. You think about when we come to this table. And we think about the gravity of Jesus raising the bread and saying this is my body. After breaking the bread this is my body given for you. And then the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which is poured out for, for the forgiveness of many. When they left the room and Jesus was not, had not begun, or when they were in the room and Jesus had not begun that last great discourse that we find in John 13 through 16. And then before the prayer in the garden and all of that, they, were, they just got to talking among themselves. And they were trying to figure out, what, what does he mean? This is No, they were saying, look, I'm on his right hand, my brother's on his left. I can tell you who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I am. And my brother is right behind me. They didn't get it. But Jesus didn't come to make us good or even good enough. We are incapable of perfection, which is demanded of all who would enter heaven. Something had to be done about our sin. And it's relatively easy for us to understand now why Jesus came and had to die on a cross. But imagine how difficult this news was when the disciples first heard it. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it at all. Jesus knew his father's will was to, for him to die as a substitute for sins... His perfect life as 100% God, 100% man made him not only eligible to die for our sins, but the only one qualified to die in our place. Jesus will visibly and publicly rule over all creation one day. So do you think he would have preferred to do that with the cross or without the cross? I think we know. I, I think when he said, Father, if there's any way, nevertheless, your will be done. And so, when Peter, impetuous Peter, we think, oh, just running off at the mouth, Peter. Said, no, Lord, you can't do that. The Messiah wouldn't die like that. No wonder Jesus rebuked him in the way that he did. Because it was a great temptation. 
for Jesus to avoid the cross. He always in the face of temptation set his face in that way. But think about it this way. When Jesus was going to Jerusalem determined to go to the cross. He was doing it with temptation voices from every direction telling him. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. We, we tend to think that our way of dealing with sin and the world ought to be God's way of dealing with sin in the world and the world's problems. The more power we amass, the better we can lead and the more good we can do, right? If I can just have more influence, if I can get enough people to listen to what I'm saying, then I can give them the truth. Look, don't you know, as Lord Acton said so well, back in the mid-19th century, power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely. The more influence and power we have, the more dangerous our situation, the more precarious our situation is. Before the Lord. There are many voices in our day. As there are in every day. Crying out for a better world. Where everyone is happy. And feels affirmed. But you need not study history long. To realize that utopian impulses. Almost always end. In violence. And if you must riot. To accomplish. Your group's goals. I don't care if you're from the right or the left. I don't care. You're not going to bring about the better world that you want. We're going to talk about this in two weeks. I'm, I'm doing the every other week thing on this submissions because Roy Lytle is going to be with us next week, one of our longest uh, standing missionaries. We've been supporting him for 25 years plus. And so Roy is going to bless our hearts next week. But the following week, we're going to talk about the kingdom. What the kingdom of God looks like now. What it will look like then. See a lot of people want to bring the kingdom right now. The kingdom is already and not yet for believers. We'll talk about what that means. But of all people believers ought to know that we cannot bring about God's kingdom by force. In verse 24 of our text, Jesus said that his disciples must take up their own crosses. In addition to me going to the cross, you need to take up your own cross as well. It's been a long time since we've had a public execution in America. Well, that we, when I say public, I mean broad, the broader public. But they were everywhere. In the first century, they were common in Jesus' day. And the disciples knew well what Jesus was talking about when he said that his followers must take up their crosses. It wasn't a pleasant thought to those who believed that their lives were just going to get better and better, especially once Jesus was ruling. But the call to discipleship is a, is a call to surrender to the will of the Father and to follow Jesus to the cross. This does not mean that if we follow Jesus, we will all be martyred, but some will. Tom Jackson used to be the pastor at Pleasant Union Church, less than two miles from here. He was also at Christian Light Church, about six miles from here, was martyred 
in 1990, along with his wife, June, as missionaries in Liberia. Not all believers are called to be martyrs, but all believers are disciples. If you belong to Jesus, you are his disciple. When you think of a disciple, you likely think of a super Christian, maybe someone like a missionary like Roy next week. You're going to be blessed in a memorable way next Sunday morning. Missionaries are special people, but Jesus' call in Matthew 16 was not so much, if you want to be really spiritual, then you need to be willing to, to be a disciple. Are you? I know you're saved, but are you a disciple of Christ? Jesus would be like, wait, no, no, you missed it. If you are saved, you are a disciple. Now, let me just say this. Because I know we all know people who used to profess Christ, don't now. They used to walk closely with the Lord, they don't. Just, just forget all of that. We're not dealing with that now. That'll find its place in the proper time. Jesus said, if you follow me, if you believe in me, then you are a disciple. And this is what is expected of you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. To deny oneself, we could talk so long about this, but just in a very short statement. It's to refuse to yield to the impulse of glory without suffering. We're all seeking glory at some level. And the disciples were seeking glory. And of course they would have said, oh, Jesus, glory, yes. But we get glory too when Jesus Receives his glory. It's to, it's to refuse to yield to the impulse of glory without suffering. And we are going to be glorified. We are glorified. But we are really going to be understand what that means when we're in heaven. Glory without suffering or human wisdom and achievement. Over godly wisdom and direction. To take up one's cross means to die to one's own designs of power and security. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Do you think Peter was thinking back to this day when he wrote these words? Peter, who had so much trouble understanding it early on, got it beautifully at the end of his life. In verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, when you're on a cross, there's only so much you can do to get back at the people. Even if you're mocking people who are mocking you, if you're giving as good as you get, we understand in the balance of things you're not in a good position. But as a believer, you're in the best position. Peter, who started so badly, finally understood what it meant to take up his cross and follow Jesus. First Peter 
one of my favorites, is a wonderful book that encourages believers to rejoice in suffering. And you can only rejoice in suffering when you get it. When you understand what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Tradition tells us that of the 12 apostles minus Judas, all were martyred for their faith. Except for John. For most of us, taking up our cross means to be humble and obedient to God's word. To forgive our enemies, to overcome evil with good. And to trust the Lord when suffering comes, as it must come in some form for disciples. We are called to take up the cross and follow Jesus. I know it's difficult to fully comprehend the gravity of verses 25 to 27 in our text. But the only way to find fulfillment and joy in this life is to lose our lives or to live a cross-centered life as we follow Jesus rather than living for ourselves. And look, it may be exciting at first when you recognize I'm living this cross-centered life. Or it may come in time, but there's somewhere along the way that living a cross-centered life really hurts. You lose friends. You suffer in ways that other people are not called to suffer. But you find life and meaning. Either... We are disciples or we are not. Mark tells us when he's recounting this incident or this instance. He he says that we must live for the Lord and not be ashamed of him. Because if we are ashamed of him now, he will be ashamed of us when he comes. Well, what does that mean for eternal sake? Stop it. Just take the words for what they are. If you are ashamed of me, then when the Son of Man comes in glory, he will be ashamed of you. If we lose our life, we will save it. If we save it, we will lose it. Either we are disciples or we're not. If you're confused about verse 27, saying that we will be rewarded according to our works, interpret this by John 6, 29. When people ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? In verse 29, he answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And people say, well, oh, you just think you have to believe in Jesus? This is what believing in Jesus is. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's your whole life. It's not just some like, cool, that's all I got to do to go to heaven, just pray this prayer. That's not the point at all. If you have not believed in Jesus, or if you're trying to work your way to heaven by being the best person you can be, Scripture plainly states that Jesus calls us to acknowledge our sins before him. And to cry out in asking the Lord to save us because we know that he is the only one who could pay for our sins. And he did so on the cross. And when you believe this and when you cry out to the Lord, you'll be committing your whole life to him. Not that you'll be perfect. But you will be his 
disciple or you will not be following him. We'll take up verse 28 of our text in a few weeks when we talk about the kingdom. So we began this time by thinking about the work of theology or the study of God. And we're going to close by thinking about two types of theology that I mention often but occasionally go into a little detail about what they are. A theology of glory, which is what Peter suggested, and a theology of the cross, which is what Jesus taught and expected of his disciples. A theology of glory states that I must earn my salvation. And even as God's child, I need to earn his favor and love. And in fact, if I show myself worthy, then he owes me. A theology of the cross, on the other hand, understands that I can never be good enough to earn God's love. But his love for me is unquestionable because the Father sent the Son to die on the cross for me. Furthermore, I don't have to earn his love from day to day. But I must rest in his love even when I suffer. We are all tempted to a theology of glory even long after we have trusted Jesus as our Savior. And we seek to follow him. We just want the Christian life to work the way we want it to work. We want him to act in ways that we expect of him. Because after all, I read it in the Bible somewhere. Ask what you will, it'll be given to you. Now, ask in his name. And all that his name implies, he will do it. But Romans 8 reminds us, that the Spirit translates our prayers. So we might pray, as I prayed for my wife, Lord, heal my wife from this brain tumor. And the Spirit may have said something like, Lord, what he means is, may she be able to speak and to think clearly through this time. And may she be a witness for you. And the Father says, I'm with you, Spirit. I'll grant that prayer. Our prayers, the only mistake we make, two mistakes. One is not praying. The other is praying from selfish motives. It's not a selfish motive to say, Lord, please heal this person. But just because God doesn't do it the way we want him to do it, doesn't mean that he doesn't love us or something went wrong somewhere. The theology of the cross helps keep our perspective correct. Our decision to be theologians of glory or theologians of the cross will determine how we study the Bible and the conclusions we draw from our study of Scripture. It will surely impact our decision, will surely impact how we live and what we expect from life and what we expect from God. How do we know whether we're theologians of glory or Theologians of the cross? Well, if you say the following, you might be a theologian of glory. I like to think of my relationship with God as a partnership. After all, I had to believe the truth to be saved, right? Because I live for the Lord and I pray for God's will to be done in my life, I know 
that he has a wonderful life partner that he will bring to me at just the right time. I'm scared to look at this section over here. But I know they're scattered all over the place. I just don't understand. Can you under, tell me, why have I been so sick while my godless neighbor has no troubles at all? What is wrong with my prayers? What is wrong with me? Next, God must be punishing my sister in Christ because she did something bad. And look at how bad things are going for her. What has she done? Theology of glory. God must not love me because I didn't get the job promotion or I lost the race. Really? Yeah, that's how far we've come in America. I, 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 I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get the race. I didn't win the race. Or even I struggle with depression. It's got to be a sign God is displeased with me. Or, or he doesn't love me. I must have done something wrong for my friend to be so mad with me. Or for my child not to love Jesus. Many of us can say that. And here's the classic indicator of a theology of glory. I deserve. I deserve. Look, just reject it. When anybody tells you you deserve something... Just say, that's stupid. No, don't do that. Just, but don't, don't take it into your heart. Well, that's a theology of glory. Contrast it with the theology of the cross and the ways that it looks in our lives. If you believe the following, you just might be a theologian of the cross. My only hope for eternal life and for abundant Life here and now is in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. The suffering that comes into my life is not the result of God's displeasure with me. Even if God disciplines me as he surely does when we stray. It is by bringing pain into my life. It is because he loves me. And he's conforming me to the image of his son. And then, I am brought into sweet and special communion with Jesus when I suffer. The Apostle Paul understood this, Philippians 3.10, that I might know him in the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to the image of his death. There is a special and sweet communion with the Lord when we suffer. And then I must learn to interpret the vicissitudes, the ups and downs. That's one of those words, you know, when you learn it, you have to use it, right? I must learn to interpret the vicissitudes of my own life through the cross. It will eliminate the urge to ask how could God do this to me? We all have that impulse. But we would be wise to tamp it down. The lesson of Job 
some people say is that you can ask God whatever you want to. He can handle it. That's true. Psalms indicate that too. But to me, the lesson of Job is if you're going to question God, put your big boy pants on because he's going to have words with you. Did my wife say preach it? Is that what you said, Allison does? But be it far from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. What a beautiful theme verse. If you need a verse to be your life verse, this would be a good one. Galatians 6, 14. Allison has been reading Kathleen Nelson's, Nielsen's book, Prayers of a Parent for Adult Children. And what she is learning, whatever she is learning at the time, often finds its way into Sunday morning sermons. She'll be saying, man, I was just reading this and that. And I'm like, whoa. And it, it, it's usually that week, too. It's, it's amazing how it happens. She just told me this two or three days ago. And I thought, it, it fits. We need to hear this. These words are from a prayer for word habits, which is, of course, about our relationship with Scripture. This is a good example of a theology of the cross. It's a good prayer for all. It's a good prayer for us. It's especially a good prayer for our children and grandchildren. May my child discover your glorious son on every page of Scripture. Grasping your redemptive plan from the beginning. Following well the unfolding prophetic word. Glorying in the gospels as they show us Jesus in the flesh. Stopping long again and again to see the cross. Where Jesus died, that's a good word. Believing resurrection truth and knowing resurrection power. Digging into the epistles doctrine and the call to live it out. Knowing how, she's saying, to apply the message of the cross to our lives. Refusing to adjust your truth, Lord, for peace or ease. Telling the good news near and far. So others can believe. And if God calls some of our children, some of ours here at Grace Community Church to be missionaries, even in dangerous places, we rejoice in that. May your heart be open to that. Studying the hope to come and living, looking for Jesus' return. Keep my child, Lord. May my child keep your word. By your grace, please let my child keep it to the end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we give thanks for your word. Which tells us what we need to know about who you are, about our sin, and about what you have done for it. 
And not only that, we give thanks for your word, for those who have proclaimed it and preached it to us. We thank you for every one of our missionaries this morning, 16 of them, in our community and all over the world, proclaiming the love of Christ and the love of God most clearly seen on the cross. Lord, we thank you that your word instructs us about the way of the cross for believers. About how suffering and glory are almost always linked together in the New Testament. And so even as we suffer, you receive glory and there's glory in our hearts. But it's a, a godly glory. Not one in which we are seeking recognition or comfort or ease. So, Father, may we all be theologians of the cross. May we take up our crosses every day. And we would need to deny ourselves in order to do that. And may we follow Jesus. And may we, like Peter who repeatedly in his letter to the churches, 1 Peter talked about the beauty of your word and the beauty of Jesus' example and the beauty even of suffering and the glory that comes as we live for you. And so, Lord... We give you thanks for Jesus and his cross. When we pray, make us like Jesus, we know what it means. And so, Lord, make us like Jesus. In whose name we pray. You would stand. Praise God from whom all. Blessings flow, praise Him of Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.